0: EEC family, um, one of the greatest blessings about being in the family of God is even when you just meet, there's an instant connection, a unity. So I've really been able to enjoy that as I've got to know you and your family and try to make the transition from ECC to EEC. That's a tough one. Uh, But thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for for having me. It's a joy um, anywhere to show up anytime and to talk about God, to be reminded how good he is and the calling on our life and our future. So uh, glad to be able to do that with you today. Uh, I've heard you guys have now uh, exited or made the exodus through uh, exodus and now are in talking about kingdom living. And so excited to be a a part of that theme as we think about who we are and, and who God is. And I really have to give all the credit for my first understanding of kingdom since I didn't grow up in a kingdom to Disney and so God uh, gave me Disney early on in life to help me understand what a kingdom was and, and what a king was. And then um, as the gospel came in and, and His word and others who would helped show it to me, um, God used that, that basic understanding to evolve and to grow. My understanding of what it is to live in a kingdom and live under a king and then to find out the the king is such a good king, the best king, the perfect king who wants the good uh, of those in his kingdom has been even better. So excited, excited to talk about that. I want to do it through the lens today of First John chapter 4, uh, a pretty famous uh, passage. But before we just dive in, um, I, I want you... Uh, to be thinking, maybe this is the first time you've heard this passage, or maybe you've heard this passage hundreds of times, you've read it hundreds of times, but I just want to ask in this moment, you pray, God, to help you understand it and maybe encounter it with a fresh lens, ask the Holy Spirit to help awaken you to something. Um, And and here's where I want to start with that, is that just by thinking about who it is, whose letter that you are reading, that this is one of the writings or epistles from John who was uh, a beloved disciple, which basically means this. You are reading a letter written by someone who knew Jesus better than anyone, who spent 24-7 with him for years. So he was there when Jesus was uh, hated and humiliated, when he was heckled. He was there when Jesus became the healer and reached out to those who were uh, untouchable or or unclean. He was there when when Jesus taught in front of thousands or when Jesus noticed one little child. John was there watching, observing, learning, deciding for himself who this man Jesus really was. Even more importantly, John, the one who we're going to read from, was the one who was there at the foot of the cross as Jesus was crucified, crucified. He watched it happen. And then days later, he was one of the first ones to the empty tomb to realize he wasn't there anymore, and he had resurrected. And he saw and hung out with Jesus after his resurrection. So when we come to read these words, it is important to know this knew Jesus and watched Jesus. We, we're not reading some glossy uh, press release by Jesus's marketing team who made it seem better than it was, but no, this is the, the open rice, the trip advisor, firsthand experience of what it was like to walk with the one who claimed to be divine, who claimed that he would be killed and resurrected, and then backed it up. So I want to invite us to open up God's word with that understanding of who we're reading from, who the Holy Spirit inspired to write this text. So we'll be in John, First uh, John, chapter four. We're going to do- deal with uh, verses seven to twenty-one today. So we'll start there, and we're primarily looking at two things: one, God's love for us, and two, how that should influence what that should do with our concerning our love for others. So God's love for us and our love for others. And so let's jump in and read the first part of that passage together, too, and then and then we will talk about it. it says this. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and set his son to be the propitiation or the uh, appeasement, the at-one-ment, the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I love how, how John starts with the word. First word he read was beloved, because John was a disciple of Jesus, but he was also was a pastor. He was one who loved, and so right before this part, he had kind of had to have some direct conversations um, with, with um, the disciples, the followers, the Christians he was writing to, and so he came back, and he wanted to remind them that they were loved and said beloved, and he was also going to challenge them that they were to love others. Uh, the translator, William Tyndale, he says when he comes to this section of John, he said, John singeth his old song again. Because as we get to chapter 4, John has already talked about this a few times. He's talked about God's love. And in chapter 2, he he equated it and he linked it to God's love with the light that was shining through us already in Christ. In, when you read chapter 3 in 1 John, he, he connects John's uh, God's love for us and, and our love for God with evidence of eternal life. But when it comes to chapter four, he, he takes it one step further, and he links the love of God with God's nature himself. And when he says, God is love. So 1 John 4, 8, which we read, and, and we'll start there talking about the nature of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Let's start with those last three words, and then we'll we'll work our way back later. But let's start with, with God is love. That statement reveals way more than what God does in his actions, but it reveals mostly who he is. So it indicates that love permeates all that God does. In all his actions, he is loving. And the word here in the Greek is, is agape or agape, and if You've been in Christian circles for a while, you, you have probably heard this, that this Greek word is not about brotherly, romantic, or familial kind of love, which have their own Greek word and are, are beautiful in their own right, but this one, agape, is, is supreme. This is used hundreds of times in the New Testament and much more rarely outside of the Bible, and um, it has come to speak to more of an intentional and a devoted kind of love. So listen to what a few scholars have to say about what agape love is. They say this, agape love is unconcerned with the self and concerned with the greatest good of another. Another one says, uh, agape love isn't born just out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will and, and as a choice. It requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. And it has to do with the mind, it is a principle by which we deliberately live. And I love to focus on that last word, the, how we deliberately live, how we deliberately act and deliberately love when I think about agape love. In fact, to help us kind of go there, let's go to the most famous passage when we talk about love, the one that even if it's your first day at church ever, you've probably heard at a wedding, which is 1 Corinthians 13, and it talks about agape love. And I'm going to take uh, a little freedom here to insert the word deliberate or intentional or purposeful in, in front of it so you can get to understand what agape love is all about. So 1 Corinthians 13 says this, agape love is deliberately patient. It is deliberately kind. It, on purpose, it does not envy or it does not boast. It is intentionally, it is not proud. It deliberately does not seek to dishonor others, and or is it self-seeking. It is intentionally not easily angered, nor does it keep record of wrongs. Agape love deliberately does not delight in evil, but makes a purpose in rejoicing in the truth. It deliberately always protects, intentionally always trusts, purposely always hopes, and it always perseveres. Agape love is unique it is divine, it is incredible, it is, it is supreme. And you know, you know who in your life doesn't think that you're perfect? Your People closest to you, family and friends, they know that you are human. They're the ones who know you best. They help you to eat a little humble pie when you need to and make sure that you don't think more highly of yourself than you should. And anytime, you know, you enter a public space or a public sphere, they'll be there to encourage you if necessary. But what they're really looking for is a moment that you might slip up or trip or do something funny and they'll lovingly tease you about it because they know you best. They know that you're human. They know that you're not perfect because they've seen you for a long time in all kinds of scenarios. And John, the writer of this letter, knew Jesus best because he spent... 24-7 with him for many, many years. And after years of essentially living with Jesus, of seeing him when the lights were on and thousands were gathered, or seeing him backstage when no one's watching, John discovered this, that Jesus is the epitome of agape love, that he is that at the core because he is divine and he is God. He knew Jesus best, and this is the conclusion he came to, and it's what he writes about us. It's what he writes about Jesus to us. Now, we start with these three words, God is love. And what is really, truly crazy is that most who ascribe to the Christian faith or who are starting to examine it, you assume this. And, and, and this is crazy that you would say, Oh, what I've heard or know about Christianity and about God is, Yeah, God is loving. And it, it's, it's really crazy that we assume this. That, that God is loving. So let me kind of take you back to my family and then explain why this is, this is a little crazy. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my, my son Titus, who is seven, um, is really into Pokemon. So he's been building this binder where he draws, he draws Pokemon as best as he can. He finds interesting facts, and so he's, he's developing this index uh, of Pokemon. Well, Katie and I, being um, really present, devoted, intentional, godly, parents that we are. What happened was he came running in frustrated that he couldn't find what he was looking for online so he could keep drawing and and learning. And so he's like, it's not there. It's not online. And again, because we're present and devoted and patient and all these things, we said, son, it's there. You're just lazy. You're not trying hard enough. And sent him away instantly. What's crazy is the audacity we would have to say that as parents Because the truth is, we have never searched up Pokemon online. We have never Googled it to see if that information was there. But we were working off one of two premises. One is there are enough people in the world who love Pokemon who would have put that site on the internet. Or two, there are enough people in the world with too much time on their hand who would have put that on the internet. Either way, the result is, it's going to be there, son. You just got to look for it, and you've got to try it. And what's crazy in this scenario is Katie and I assumed a changed world. Fifty years ago, this wouldn't have been true. Fifty years ago, uh, you don't assume that knowledge is instantly available or accessible. You had to go to this community vault called the library. And when you went there, you instantly probably fell out of place and as you search for what you wanted, you hope that no one discovered that you actually didn't know how the Dewey Decimal or whatever classification system used, you didn't know how it worked, and so you would stumble around. And by the time you got to the, the area of the library you finally wanted, you hoped that some other lover of medieval romance novels hadn't made it there before you. Because the world that you lived in, you knew that information wasn't unlimited, unlimited wasn't free, easily accessible, that it was limited. And now Katie and I live on this other side of that. And we just assume it's there and we take it for granted. We live in a privileged place. We kind of stand on the same side of history when it comes to understanding that God is love. I mean, John writes it. We assume it. But where, where did it come from? It wasn't a Roman thought of the day. It doesn't come from a natural experience uh, of just living in this world that's full of suffering or heartache or, or disappointment. Um, it didn't come from other religions at the time. It, it was a unique idea. In fact, Annie Stanley says that God is love is a uniquely Christian idea. And there's an older Catholic scholar, his name is really fun to say, Schnackenberg. He says this, There's no parallel to this statement, God is love, outside of Christianity we live in a privileged position and place to be on this side to understand who God is through Jesus and that God is love. It's uniquely Christian to say we believe in a God uh, whose nature it is to give up himself for the betterment and the blessing of others. And so anytime that I think in life that you discover you're in a privileged place, one thing that you should definitely do is stop and consider What would it be like if I wasn't in this place of privilege? What is it like for others who may not be in that place? And so for us, we are in a privileged place to live under the reign in this kingdom of a God who is love. But what if that wasn't true? What if those three little words weren't true? Well, eternity with the big guy with God doesn't sound as fun anymore, right? You're gonna spend eternity with a God who is not loving to you. And actually, if you back up a step, Eternity comes into question because, well, God has promised it in His Word, but He's not loving. Maybe He's not faithful to His Word. And if I can't count on the security of eternity through Christ, that, that God is love, well, what what does that mean? Anxiety and security um, start to sky, uncertainty start to skyrocket. My, my peace that was there before through Christ goes away. Everything would change. Because everything in our faith hinges on these three important words that God is love. We are in a place of privilege because of who God is and what we know about Him. So, if anything, maybe today just take a moment and stop and dwell on that and appreciate it and kind of sit on that, that we have a God who loves us. And if He does today, because He's faithful, because agape love is faithful, He will tomorrow, and that is for our good. So we should celebrate that as a church together, that God is love. Now, as you continue to read 1 John, his discourse, his conversation is epistemological. It's trying to answer the question, how do we know what we know? How do we really know if we're saved, if we're a child of God, if we're part of the family of God? If we, how do we know if we have been made new? How, how do we know that? Because remember 1 John uh, 4, 7, and 8 says this. It says that whoever loves has been born of God, and um, anyone who does not love does not know God. Well, that makes sense at first. It's like, but the more you think about it, it kind of gets confusing. Well, in a sense, we all have loved. Everyone in the world has loved, so maybe we've all been born of God. And then another sense, we've all failed to love at some point points in our life. And so maybe none of us know God. And so John does a great job of really making it clear and confusing at the same time. But the important thing to remember here, what John is trying to say, is that everyone who loves is a limited set. It's not everyone who loves in whatever way they deem is right, in whatever way that they want, in whatever way is convenient. But this whole passage is talking about God's love, the nature of God's love, and agape love And so this limited set, everyone who has been born of God, is those who love, who agape love others. Those who love as God defines love. Those people have been born again. And so John, while earlier in this book, he says a previous um, determinant of if you know God is if you obey the commands of Jesus. He's now coming and saying, and also another way you can know if you know God is if you agape love others in the way that you were agape loved by God. If agape love has taken root in your heart and is starting to become part of your action. Because he says this in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. He lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Now that can be really scary because um, any of you will who knows anyone else, they would tell you that your love has not been perfect. So it's kind of a scary place to start as you read that. But as you start to understand this, you need to know it's different than what most people may think of at first when they hear the word perfected. Most people, when you first hear the word perfected, you think something has gone from being flawed uh, to becoming flawless, that it was messed up and now it it is made perfect. But that, um, for the most time in the new testament in greek that's not what this greek word of perfected means the the word is teleio in greek and it has the sense of completed or, or finished kind of like a trip or or a project that you've taken and so your trip may not have been perfect you may not have drove at the perfect speed made all the perfect turns or your project may not have been perfect every step along the way but it finished and completed what it intended to do and you arrived at the destination or you have completed what you wanted in the project. This is the sense that John is writing with. So God's agape love reaches its goal in us when it springs us into agape loving others, when, when goodwill or good wishing shifts into good um, works for God's sake. So in these, these verses, perfected love is not flawless love, which is good for us. Perfected love is when you don't just talk about the need to share Christ you do it. Perfect love is when you don't just become a consumer in the church and take, 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 but you ask, how can I be a blessing? How can I give to others? It's when you don't just talk about the impoverished in the city, but you say, how can I resource them with time, energy, skill, love? It's when you don't just talk about those that are hurting and say, oh, that's so sad. It's when you come alongside them, you care for them, you provide for them, you pray for them, It's when you don't just wish well new Christians to the faith, but you try to resource them with with studies or mentors or scripture or prayer. It's when your good wishes become good works for the gospel. You start to agape love others. So that's that's one way John is saying we know that we have come to know God is when God's agape love Starts helping us to agape love others. So John had naturally said, well, uh, if God loved us so, we ought to love one another. That's verse 11. And he doesn't just say that like ought, like it's an obligation, which is how church maybe, if you grew up in the church, maybe you felt that way. Well, Jesus did it. So I guess I'm supposed to do it. So let me go do X, Y, Z. Then I'll alleviate that guilt or someone will at least get off my back about it. You know, um, But he doesn't mean ought to like that. He means ought like it's a new nature for us in the way that um, a bird ought to fly, a, a cheetah ought to run, or sriracha ought to be hot or spicy. We ought to, when we come to new life and new birth, we ought to love others. And, and John talks about two ways that that should happen. He says, well, you have this external thing that happened. He talks about Jesus came and he died for you. So intellectually, you should see that and you should know that and you should see God's love that he sent his son to die in our place so that we, as we saying, we might have the righteousness that was Jesus's through his perfect life. That's the external thing, and that's really good, and don't discount that, but he says something even greater is not only externally, but now when you come to faith, you should have something internal, an internal impulse. And he says this in, in verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him, we live in him, and he in us, because he has giving, given us his spirit. So the spirit of God, the, the God that was the sending God, the send his son Jesus to help those who were far from him, that God now lives inside of us. So we don't just intellectually assent to something that happened in history, but now that same God who his nature is love, he lives inside of us. So We ought to love one another, not just because we have to, but because we have been given a new birth and new inclinations and a new hope and a new way of seeing things because of the new kingdom that we are living in. The spirit inside of us gives us a new way of serving and seeing the people around us. So John gives us both the external motive and the internal power we have to love others. So um, as it turns out, If you're a Christian, love for God and love for others is inseparable. It really, really is. Imagine, because I feel like this is part of what John is doing, imagine how that would change our claim to faith. We often say, well, yeah, I love God. So I intellectually assent that he was real, he is real, he sent his son. So yes, I love for God. And that's kind of been the barometer of have we come to faith? But maybe we've incompletely um, assumed the determining fact of our faith is our assertion to love God. Because what if it is, do we agape love others? Part of what John seems to be arguing here. That seems to be what he's saying. And so it's impossible to approach others in our life, at work, at home, in friendships, people we meet on the street, in a way that is abhorrently contrary to the way God approached us through Jesus. Those two cannot be. It is light and dark. And so love for God and love for others should go hand in hand. In fact, John really talks really strongly about this in verses 20 and 21. It's his language, not mine. He says this. He says, If anyone says, hey, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. Uh, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, Jesus, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So liar seems harsh really for John to say, but what, what, what's a guy to do? He had people in the church who said that they followed Jesus, but they weren't following Jesus. Not as a friend, not as a teacher, and not definitely not as God in a way that they should obey him. I follow Jesus, but they're not following him, doing what he did or what he said we should do. And so he says, that's hypocritical. That's that's lying. Those two cannot go hand in hand because he says, Jesus commanded us to love others, the two greatest commandments. Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And to hijack a verse and a phrase that you hear often, what God has brought together, what Jesus brought together, let no man separate. These two belong together loving God, and loving others. It wasn't just a suggestion or an afterthought, afterthought from Jesus. It was a mission-critical way of being in the world, of being the church, of being made new. And sometimes um, I ask myself a really tough question because I often find I'm, I say I follow, but I'm not following. And I know my destiny in heaven is to be perfected, to be made like Jesus, um, But when those things aren't lining up, I often ask um, if I don't want to be like Jesus now. I know he's this, but I'm choosing not to be like that. If I don't want to be like Jesus now, what makes me think I want to be like him forever, which is my destiny. So it really is a a call and a challenge to myself to say, here's a character trait that I know is of Jesus, of God, and it will be mine forever, but I'm choosing that I don't want it right now. And so i got to continually like ask myself, okay, this is going to be mine forever. I need to align with it now, and I know that it's for my good. Okay, John says one more thing that is is really good for us that I want us to to look at. He says, verse 17 and 18, he says, by this is love perfected with us so that we can have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Everyone, I think, everyone wants more confidence, and everyone wants less fear. If you're in a healthy place, that seems, that seems right. Everyone wants more confidence, and everyone wants less fear. And so, literally the first phrase of verse 18 reads, fear is not in love. Fear is not in love. The, the two are are mutually exclusive and we find in this passage the opposite of confidence is fear. That love will produce more confidence and love will take away fear that we have in our life. So John is saying in summary, when your love move moves beyond talk because the love of God has had its desired effect in your life. It is perfected. It has launched you into Agape loving others in the same way, you're gonna experience a confidence before God. Your understanding of how God loves you through agape love will secure you in a place that you can stand before God, like Hebrew says, to approach the throne of grace and confidence, which is crazy, but we can do that. And so as we, got to, if we understand God's love for us, we can do that. And so our confidence goes up in how we're loved and our place in God's family and our fear goes down that we can't stand, look at God is or even talk to him about what is really going on. And um, our experience of God's love working through us to love others will assure us of his presence. Fear is going to take a backseat and confidence because of who God is will start to emerge. So I, I, I kind of want to wrap up with us saying, okay, we've looked at the text. We've looked at what, what John was saying, the one who knew Jesus best. We've learned a little bit about agape love. And so how does that play out in our life? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, the minute after this feed ends, how should that start playing out in our life? And so I want to give you a couple um, thoughts to consider and reflect on if agape love is working, if you have it in your life, or there's a lack thereof, and how how you can grow in it. Um, I was listening uh, with my kids and my wife to a song um, that I think is an artist for adults, but had written stuff for kids, and she said, love is the game where you don't keep score. Love is the game where you don't keep score. And I thought that was really good. It stuck with me. And in fact, that's really what we read in 1 Corinthians 13, that love keeps no records of wrongs. I think something that really keeps us from agape loving others is when we try to keep score. In one sense, we may keep score because we want to have the upper hand. We want to win. It's really fun to win. Um, But agape love isn't about a competition, which winning and losing creates. Because the more that you have to build yourself up in a relationship at home with a friend at work that you are better means that someone else is worse or that you're winning means that they're losing. And agape love, if you remember, is concerned about the other. And so we have to be really careful. We're not agape loving when we keep scores in relationship, which is natural and that's okay but it's not part of our new nature, and it's not good, and it's not what God's love is like. And so we don't want to do that. But some of you are saying, okay, I'm a little better. Those people are prideful. They want to win. I don't want to win. I just think that the world should be fair. So I keep score to make sure it's even, because God is just, and things should be fair. But this world we live in, in this moment, is not fair. And God doesn't guarantee us fairness and relationship in the world. And in fact, what happened to Jesus when he died for us was not fair. We were the beneficiaries of, of uh, unfair exchange that happened there. But some of us in our relationships, we keep score, not so that we can win and knock the other person down, but just so we equally contribute. It's actually one of the favorite things about my wife because her birthday comes after mine by a couple weeks. So when it's time to buy gifts, I get to wait and see what she buys me. And then I go, okay, that's about the amount of money, the amount of effort, and the amount of forethought I should put in. Now let me go search. It's brilliant and it's great, but it's not agape loving, okay? And so when we think in our relationships about keeping score, either to win or that it should be fair, we're losing from the start. It's going to be really hard to have a healthy, spiritually healthy heart, an agape kind of heart if we're trying to make things be fair. And we just need to focus on the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf was not fair. And so we need to love like God without expecting reciprocation or expecting things to equal up in the end. It frees us, it really does, when we don't keep score. The the other thing that I want to mention is to think about this could either be at the beginning of a day or the end of the day. At the beginning of the day, this could be a prayer for God help me to operate this way and be aware of this. At the end of the day, it could be a reflection on how did I do? But I want you to ask what bucket that you're drawing from when you give to others, when you serve others, when you speak to others, because we all have these symbolic buckets that we draw from. Um, Sometimes we give, serve, act Um, out of a bucket, uh, we pull from our pride because we want to be seen a certain way. So I'm going to perform, I'm going to do this action, I'm going to get this for you, say this, prepare this because I want you to see me in a certain way. And so we're actually, our motive is kind of prideful in that way. Maybe we're pulling from guilt or shame and that's an unhealthy way. So we're going to do something for someone else at, at work or at home but we're doing it because we're working out of fear. We're working out of shame because we don't want to be seen a certain way or we feel we don't measure up. And so we're just going to work, work, work till, till hopefully we're, we're good enough or we're at peace. But it's just a vicious cycle. So we can pull from pride. We can pull from guilt or shame. Or honestly, we all have a bucket of just uh, leave me alone. You know, like, I'm gonna do this so that you'll get off my back or, or you won't um, nitpick me anymore or I just don't have to deal with this. And if you, um, you probably have this at work. If you have young kids, maybe you have this bucket too. It comes with them when they're born. I'm just like, okay, fine, just get what you take. But that's also not agape love. And it's okay because it happens, but we need to be reflecting on and praying to move to a healthier, God honoring way. It happens but it's good just to be aware of of when it happens. Um, What we should be doing is saying, hey, we have this bucket that has been filled, and we're praying it's filled every day with God's love for us, his agape love. And so I'm gonna do this, you know what, because of the way God views you, that you are loved, you were created, and even if on the outside, you're not the most appealing to me right now because of our history or what you've said, I wanna see you through God's lens, and how he created and, and his heart for you as he watched you grow up and develop a personality and be unique in this world. So I'm going to draw from this bucket to choose to respond or to love you, or I'm going to pull from just it's a joyful response of what I've received. I have had an unfair uh, benefit and gift through Jesus and the way I was loved when I didn't deserve it at all. Before I ever changed anything about myself, God responded to me through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, wakening my heart to understand that. And so you know what? I'm going to give to you no matter who you are in whatever relationship. I'm going to give to people because it's a joyful response for what God has done for me. And I'm going to love others like that. And it brings me joy to see it acted out here on this earth and in this city and in my life. It's fun to actually see it happen in other places, to see God at work. And so um, church, my prayer is that the way God has loved you starts becoming more and more natural for the way you love others. And it's step by step by step. And so all we pray is God, help us to be aware, help us to take that next faithful step. So let's pray right now that God would help us to do that. God, your love is like none other. All the stuff we just talked about, we read about, that doesn't describe me in the least. Maybe it describes an ideal, but I don't even know if my ideal reaches the reality of your love. And So thank you for lavishing your love, pouring out your love on us. Thank you for who you are, not just what you do, God, but who you are at the core is love. And I thank you what that means to be in your kingdom. We pray, God, as we, as we live in this new kingdom with new nature, new inclinations, that we would see that reciprocated out, not just vertically between us and you, but horizontally amongst each other, that we would love like you loved us. And we pray, God, as people watch, that they would see you, that they would admire you, that the Holy Spirit would draw them through seeing that uh, in, in the 21st century. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of uncertainty in so many areas of our life, they see agape love lived out And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use that to draw others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.